Today's conversation is the podcast of the National Association of Evangelicals, hosted by Walter Kim, NAE President. Today's conversation is with Raymond Chang, President of the Asian American Christian Collaborative. The topic, Understanding the Asian American Experience. Today's conversation is brought to you by OneShare Health. Open enrollment has been extended, but did you know that you have options outside of the typical insurance providers to pay for your health care? OneShare Health offers affordable ACA-exempt health care programs based in the Christian faith. Your health care experience should be flexible, faithful, and come with an unparalleled member experience. OneShare Health provides all this and much more by helping members of their faith community lead healthier, joyful lives through Christian giving. Terms and conditions apply. Visit OneShareHealth.com for details. And now, let's join in. I'm Walter Kim, here with Raymond Chang, who serves as a campus minister at Wheaton College. He also co-founded and serves as president of the Asian American Christian Collaborative. Prior to these roles, Ray was on the pastoral staff at the Orchard Evangelical Free Church in Illinois. He's also been a Peace Corps volunteer in Panama, a youth pastor in LA, and a director of two nonprofits. Ray regularly preaches and speaks throughout the country on Christianity and culture, race, and faith. He brings a lot of insight, understanding, and thoughtfulness to these topics. And I personally have benefited from all of this. So I'm grateful to spend some time talking with you today. Thanks for joining us, Ray. Oh, it's great to be with you, Walter. I know, uh, just so you know, that many Korean Americans celebrated with you when you took the role uh, as the president of the NAE. Uh, and I know that we've been in a lot of virtual rooms together, uh, but I'm looking forward to a time when we can actually get together in person. I did appreciate grabbing lunch with your wife, Tony, and members of your church staff a couple of years ago, and I hope she's doing well. Thank you for, for saying that. Yes, she, she is. Well, um, before we jump into today's topic, um, tell me a little bit about your role at Wheaton College. How did you get connected there? Yeah, I work in the chaplain's office, uh, overseeing discipleship efforts at the college. I oversee our small group ministries. I speak in chapel and do a lot of pastoral care and counseling, in addition to serving on several committees, including the Evangelism Committee and the Diversity Committee. Uh, I'm a graduate of Wheaton College, as is Jessica, whom I'm married to. Uh, But long story short, uh, someone reached out with a job description. I applied, uh, got the job, and I've been at Wheaton for over five years. That's great. Now, uh, the other part of your life uh, is with an organization that you co-founded with Michelle Reyes, the Asian American Christian Collaborative. What, what led you to begin this organization? Yeah, so along with Michelle and myself, there were actually two others who co-founded the organization with us, uh, Jeff Leo and Jay Katanis. Uh, for some time, people had actually been ha- asking me for something that cared for, represented, and advocated for Asian American Christians. Um, and people have asked through the years if I ever thought about starting something. And I always kind of kick the can down the road because quite frankly, it's really hard to get people to care about Asian American issues, including faith, fellow Asian Americans. Uh, the ways that we're racialized uh, leads people, including people in our own communities, uh, whether they're Christian or not, to downplay the racialized struggles, pains, and the problems that we deal with. Uh, and this also means that we also downplay the things that we're able to contribute to the full body of Christ. So I knew that unless there were the larger kind of societal and systemic catalyst to start something for Asian Americans uh, wouldn't garner much attention. 
Um, when COVID-19 hit and we started hearing rhetoric from the most powerful leaders in our country, including the citizen, sitting president of the United States, uh, who called it China virus and Kung flu. Uh, those who knew how racism impacted Asian Americans historically and in the present knew that we would be in for a season of racialized harm and violence, which we've actually seen. Uh, but back then, as Jeff Jay and I were talking about responses to social media posts where racism against Asian Americans were being dismissed and even mocked by fellow believers, many of whom were in our evangelical churches, it gave us a lot of concern, especially as many of those attitudes and words were coming from evangelical church leaders and pastors, including those we were in fellowship with. And so as we started talking about how to respond, I, I quickly reached out to Michelle, and then we quickly galvanized a group of people who helped to draft a statement on anti-Asian racism in the time of COVID-19, which I'm grateful for your support of. Uh, and then when we saw the broader support of our statement on anti-Asian racism in the time of COVID-19, it be became pretty clear that this might be a time to start something for Asian American Christians that would both serve as a way to amplify our voices, galvanize our communities, and to show the world that you know, Asian American Christians uh, have something meaningful to contribute to the broader body of Christ, as well as to the kind of the broader world and society that we live in. Mm -hmm. Ray, you bring up some uh, painful experiences, uh, very complicated situation. We're going to explore that uh, further in a moment. Uh, I'd like to ask uh, first, however, what do you identify as the unique contribution that the Asian American Christian Collaborative offers the church in America at this particular point? Yeah, thanks for that question. Um, I think several things. Uh, we want to let people know that Asian American Christians and the a historic Asian American church actually has deep activistic roots. Uh, much like the black church, we are seeking to offer a space for Asian American Christians to connect, to share their stories, and to keep a record of our unique perspectives and experiences at AACC. Um, the challenge again with being Asian American is that our voices are often muted and muffled. Uh, they're often silenced and stifled. And the, what I found is that the less we lead with our ethnic cultures and our racialized experiences, the more we tend to be accepted in the broader society, which includes the broader non-Asian church. Uh, and the more we bring our full selves, it seems like the less we tend to be accepted. But what AHCC wants to do is to help people see that Asian American Christians have important things to contribute from our cultural standpoint and out of our ethnic heritage. Uh, unfortunately, uh, that hasn't always been been embraced. Uh, and so we've had to, had to kind of assimilate and erase ourselves or choose a type of exclusion when we decide to bring more ourselves in. Um, but we do focus on what we call, what I call the ACE model, advocacy, community, and equipping. And so uh, when it comes to advocacy, for example, we want to recover the heart of the historic Asian American church, which I said has deep activistic roots, which are very much in line with one of the four tenets of evangelicalism and Bevington's quadrilateral. Um, as a part of that, we've you know, hosted prayer rallies and marches in response to both the murders of uh, many black people, as well as in response to the Atlanta shootings. Uh, as much as we intend to advocate for our own communities, we also wanna advocate for other communities as it's within our ability to do so. So for example, on March 28th of 2021, shortly after the Atlanta shootings where eight people were killed, six of whom were Asian women, four Korean and two Chinese, um, we hosted simultaneous prayer rallies in 14 cities throughout the country all at the same time, which is what simultaneous means. Uh, 
Uh, but it was powerful to see so many Asian American churches and Christians really rally together in the span of 10 days to respond in one unified voice. Uh, but last year, uh, as we saw what happened with uh, George Floyd, closely following what we saw with Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and the many other uh, lives that were taken, it was important for people to see that the Asian American church wouldn't just stand idly by. Because one of the most common criticisms is, you know, where is the Asian American voice? Where's the Asian American Christian voice? And so we marched from a historic 100 plus year old Chinese American church, CCUC, our Chinese Christian Union Church in Chicago, Chinatown, to a historic 100 plus year old African American church, Progressive Baptist Church, which is pastored by a friend of mine named uh, Charlie Dates. So on top of advocacy, we also want to cultivate a fellowship of Asian American Christians and pastors throughout the country. And one of the consistent things I hear is that AACC has quickly become a watering hole for many Asian American Christians. And we want to continue to provide meaningful spaces for people to engage with us and with one another. And one of the ways in which we're trying to do that is both through hosting events, virtual and live, uh, especially when, uh, as the pandemic uh, dies out, um, and then having AACC chapters uh, throughout the country, as well as college chapters. And then finally, the educational model, you know, um, or the equipping model, we want to focus a lot on education, uh, because I think for many of us, uh, especially if we're in the evangelical world, we, we have tended to divorce Jesus from justice. Uh, too many Christians uh, have separated Jesus from justice in ways that aren't consistent with what we see in the scriptures. Uh, and we've forgotten that to pursue righteousness actually demands that we pursue justice. And we forget that justice is actually an essential aspect of God's character and a hallmark of his kingdom, and that it actually has real implications for this world that we live in. Uh, one of the things that we want to help people engage with is whole life discipleship, and one that's not truncated or diluted. And so as we want to encourage people to pursue personal holiness, we also want them to possess a deep social concern, especially since our faith is expressed both in the privacy of our hearts, as well as publicly through our actions and inactions. And so we want to serve as a resource hub for anyone interested in learning about aspects of Asian American Christianity, whether they are Asian American, Asian American, Asian American Christians or not. Ray, you have given us a lot to chew on with that kind of survey of the, the work of AACC. Um, it, one of the things that I want to pull out right now is um, history. You've alluded to immigration history, uh, the patterns of relationships, self-understanding. Just give us a little bit of a primer. I mean, give us an overview, a history of regarding Asian Americans. I mean, where do we begin? I think the history of Asian Americans has to be traced back to... Um, back to the continent of Asia and to our individual and unique uh, countries. But I, I think if we just focus on um, Asian America or uh, Asian Americans, I think that you can see kind of the, the waves of our sense of exclusion and belonging uh, throughout the course of history. And so, you know, what most people don't realize is that Asian Americans were brought in as replacement labor for slaves. And, um, and as we started garnering space within the communities and started gaining uh, a sense of uh, an economic foothold, uh, a, a social foothold within our societies, it became clear that it felt threatening to the predominantly white society that existed you know, back then. And so we would see things like lynchings in 1871, which you know, the Asian American community experienced, the largest single lynching in the history of the country 
industry actually occurred to Asian Americans, to, and more specifically the Chinese uh, people in LA, where 10% of the Chinese population was wiped out. It was between 17 and 20 people. And 10% of the broader uh, LA community, and I believe the broader kind of uh, white uh, community in the Los Angeles area, descended upon what is now known as Chinatown to, uh, to do the lynching and to uh, exterminate them. Uh, the, the people eventually got off and, um, and justice really wasn't served. Uh, but throughout history, Asians have been considered yellow peril. And this is consistent with what we're seeing uh, with the COVID-19 virus and uh, us being considered a dirty or filthy or, or, or infected type of people that have brought the virus to, to the country. Um, but I would say that in terms of discrimination, there's four major waves. The first wave uh, happened in uh, the Chinese exclusion where um, uh, entire people groups were banned from entering into the United States. And so it was the first race-based uh, uh, immigration ban that we saw and, um, and that excluded Chinese people from coming in. That later in a, in, in a couple of decades led to uh, Chinese women from being uh, uh, excluded and banned from entering into the country because they saw that the Chinese people who were already in the, in the country were growing in their population and they wanted to stop the, the population growth. And so they said that if Chinese women can't come in, then they'll be allowed, then, then the, the Chinese population would eventually die out or, or it just wouldn't grow or it would, it would somehow disappear. And then it turned into a, the, a, the Asiatic Bard Zone where the majority of the Asian continent was banned from entering into the United States. And for 80 years, we were prevented from coming into the country. And so our population should actually be a lot larger than it actually is right now. And unfortunately, you know, we're at 5.6%. We're, at we're currently the fastest growing um, uh, uh, racial uh, group in the, in the nation. But I wonder what it would have been like if we were, let's say, 15, 20, 25% of the, the nation's population at this point. What might our experiences be now? Then you fast forward to the Japanese, to World War II, the bombing of Pearl Harbor, which was actually a reaction to the, the, the colonizing powers of the West and Japan's desire to keep uh, Western forces away from Asia and to say, hey, we uh, just let Asia be for Asians, uh, let our countries be for ourselves. Please, please just uh, stop trying to colonize us. Uh, don't uh, imperialize us. Uh, and so that's why um, Japan was or Japan bombed uh, Pearl Harbor. And then everyone of Asian descent, uh, and I have a poster right behind me uh, that's from the, the original uh, incarceration or internments uh, that basically um, forced all people of Asian or, or of Japanese descent to go into uh, incarceration camps. And they collected people, not just from the United States, but all throughout the Americas. And so people who were in Central America and South America were actually shipped to incarceration camps, except for in places like Hawaii, where they needed the labor. So where it was beneficial for a kind of a white dominant America to uh, preserve power and to, to utilize Asians or, and to utilize the Japanese, they, they didn't really expect uh, or they didn't exclude the Japanese Americans from uh, or force Japanese Americans to enter into these incarceration camps. But everywhere else, uh, they were treated as if they were a major threat. Uh, and so they were, they were thrown into these camps. The same treatment wasn't uh, occurring to the German Americans, right? Even though they might have had connections to Nazi Germany, 
we didn't see the same type of treatment to German Americans broadly. And so it was something about being Asian and more specifically being Japanese that led to this type of, uh, this type of treatment. Now, within the German population, the German American population, though they, they took it more as an individual case, in, uh, case by case, um, and they did kind of interrogate some people and, and, and did uh, incarcerate some people, but it wasn't mass incarceration like we saw with the Japanese. And then we saw 9-11 and anyone that looked Arab American, Middle Eastern, Muslim American or Muslim was automatically treated as a terrorist, whether uh, they were a law-abiding citizen or not. Uh, even Arab Christians in America were treated as terrorists because of the prevailing stereotypes and the, the, the prevailing um, uh, perceptions that people had. Indian friends of mine, Southeast Asian friends of mine, all had to change the way that they looked. They had to shave their beards if they had beards. They had to grow out their hair if they had if they shaved their heads. Uh, and they were regularly uh, they regularly felt like people were staring at them or even blatantly asking them if they were terrorists or some form of like uh, uh, of a threat again to to the country, despite their Christian commitments, despite their longstanding American. Uh, kind of uh, identity. And then of course, with COVID-19, we're seeing a, a huge spike in violence. Uh, 4,000 cases have been re uh, reported to stop AAPI hate. Uh, and that's probably just a small portion of the incidents that have been reported. Uh, we saw early on that a Myanmar family was uh, perceived to be Chinese walking out of a store and then someone stabbed them, including two children under the ages of, uh, the ages of five and two. Um, Elderly women were lit on fire. Someone, an Asian woman was, had, had acid thrown on her while she was taking out the trash. Uh, someone yelled at me while I was just outside of my home, uh, driving by in a truck saying, you yellow piece of expletive. And all they saw about me was that I had Asian features. They didn't know if I was Korean. They didn't know if I was Chinese. They didn't know if I was Japanese, but they, for some reason, felt like I was bringing something harmful to them and felt that they had they were entitled to talking to me in a particular way. And so uh, we've seen five significant deaths and then the, uh, of course, the, uh, the shootings in Atlanta, which all happened within the backdrop of uh, a really exhausting and painful year for Asian Americans. Ray, you describe in very poignant terms the history and how that history plays into the present. And those are some of the, the, the dark moments, the dark and difficult experiences. Um, and yet there are also different kinds of responses that we could pursue. If you were to do like a mini cultural sensitivity training uh, for people who really do seek to love and care for their Asian American friends, neighbors, fellow congregants, uh, inside, outside of the church, but, what would you tell them? What kind of language to use, avoid? What, what, what's the posture taken? Uh, what, what advice would you give? Yeah, so I think that because there are two prevailing stereotypes, right, which have sub-stereotypes beneath each of them, um, there's, there's an important uh, kind of work of understanding the ways in which Asian Americans have broadly been racialized in the country and the ways in which that racialization has bled into the church, which is why many people would say that there's almost no difference between what they experience out in the world and within the church. 
And sadly, in light of all of the racial unrest that we're seeing, uh, I've heard more Christians of color say they have found more comfort from their non-Christian, non-believing organizations, companies, friends, than they have from their evangelical pastors, evangelical uh, communities. Because we've had such a malnourished and, uh, and really famished discipleship when it comes to applying the gospel into racial issues. Um, we've taken a colorblind approach uh, and we've taken an approach where we just want to pretend like a cancer, like racism doesn't exist and think that if we just treat people as if racism doesn't exist, that racism will just go away instead of actively working to address it and specifically applying the treatments that racism demands, uh, which are generated from a kingdom vision of a kingdom community uh, in the power of Jesus through his life, death, and resurrection, empowered by the Holy Spirit to actively talk about the sin of racism that might even reside within our own communities. And so I think one of the things that we have to understand is the ways that the model minority myth and the perpetual foreigner stereotype have impacted both of our communities or have impacted our communities. Um, the model minority myth essentially says that Asians are a particular way. They're good, they're hardworking, they are genetically wired to, um, to, uh, to succeed. And a part of that, it comes through like us being good at math, us being good at you know things like being engineers and really not rocking the boat or changing challenging the status quo. The challenge with the model minority myth is that it forces a lot of Asian Americans to choose between whether they want to be embraced by the broader dominant society or to face discrimination if they buck against it. The importance of us bucking against the model minority myth is that it's historically been used not to celebrate Asian Americans, but to keep other communities of color down. And so it's often used to say, why can't black people, why can't Latinos be like Asian Americans? It also makes it impossible for us to actually share our own struggles. So, you know, one of the things that we've seen throughout the, the COVID pandemic is that the greatest, the community that's experienced the greatest mental health issues has been the Asian American community. Uh, the, the, the greatest amount of um, unemployment that we're seeing uh, in, in the COVID pandemic is the Asian American community. So that now we are now second to uh, the African American community as a whole. Uh, most people, because they think that we're quote unquote successful, will not see the pain and struggle uh, that many of our community members face. Um, and so that's the problem with the model minority myth. It makes people think that if they don't fit into this one stereotype that, they're, that they failed, and then you add the, the shame of uh, many Asian cultures uh, into that, and that, that adds another burdensome element. The perpetual foreigner syndrome or the perpetual foreigner kind of stereotype basically said that no matter how many generations were in the United States, we're never fully American enough, which is why we continue to hear the question, where are, you where are you from? And then when you say, oh, I'm actually from Chicago or LA or from Virginia or from New York, they say, where are you really from? And they'll say, why, do your people eat this? Or why does your people, why does your food smell like this or smell like that? As if our cuisine isn't American enough, even though that's the only, that's been like the primary cuisine that we've consumed throughout our upbringings and our uh, kind of our, our uh, the, the, throughout our lives. And so 
You know, I think that any type of, so if I'm doing like a mini cultural sensitivity training, I would say, read about the model minority myth. You can, there's, there's plenty of resources on our website, AsianAmericanChristianCollaborative.com or AACristCollab.com. And the AA Christ Collab uh, is our kind of like our social media handle. And we're constantly putting out resources there. Uh, but there are plenty of books that you can read on it. And then the perpetual foreigner syndrome is the same thing. Uh, I think that you need to kind of read up on those things. Uh, it's also important to do some history work. Uh, so anything by Erica Lee, uh, especially like Asians for or the making of Asian America, uh, anything by Ronald Sataki, um, and then uh, May Nye and, and several others, uh, Ellen Wu, uh, The Color of Success. Um, I think those are all important books to read because you'll understand the forces that have shaped us. Um, and then uh, once you understand our history, I think it's important to kind of do some interrogative work in yourself to say, in what ways do I see Asians as the other or not as a full member of our community or is not a central member of our community? And what ways am I centering myself over their experiences and consistently putting their experiences in the margins? And is there any way I am exotifying uh, Asians to be kind of like the add on or the tack on at the end of something instead of allowing their experiences, their expressions to be kind of at the center of things? I also think that we have to understand that our cultures, our upbringings, uh, the values that are kind of baked into uh, different Asian, Asian ethnicities uh, means that we engage with leadership and groups and team dynamics very differently, right? And so uh, in the West, for example, um, uh, especially in the United States, uh, there's a pioneering spirit, which I love. I, I think it's great that, you know, we, we, we love to, kind of explore new territories, to do, to, to explore new industries, to, to innovate and to develop, even though I do believe that Chinese people have been the most innovative throughout history. And I think that's often lost in the narrative. Um, the ways that we tend to navigate different rooms is that uh, in, in the West, because of the pioneering spirit, there's a sense of like, you know, of a first mover advantage, you know, the, the first person to speak up in a room or in a meeting, you know, they're the ones that kind of get to set the tone and they get to set the pace. And there's data around that, that, that can be effective. But within Asian, a lot of Asian American communities, there is a philosophy that the, the fool speaks first. And so a lot of Asian American leaders will let people around them speak to hear where people are coming from and then they'll incisively share something wise at the end to kind of wrap things up or to kind of move the group forward. That's not necessarily welcome all the time. And sometimes meetings kind of close off too early because again, I think many Asian Americans are more event oriented than they are time oriented. And uh, more in the West tend to be more time oriented than they are event oriented or even community oriented. Um, and so that, those are a couple of things that we can do uh, to do like a mini cultural sensitivity training to know that it's not funny, you know, like, like usually when you make a joke or you hear something about Asian Americans, like racism against our communities, the first line of racism is often a joke. And it actually does do some significant harm because it tells us that we're co the constant outsider. And so anything where we're, you know, our languages are being mocked or our food is being mocked or uh, any stereotypes are being highlighted uh, or we're called derogatory terms that have deep, deep historical significance uh, that most people aren't aware of uh, because our, our histories are often erased. 
uh, I think those are things that we have to become more and more aware of. So part of the sensitivity training, of, of course, is uh, awareness of this history of uh, the model minority, perpetual foreigner myths. Um, but you've also alluded to something way beyond cultural sensitivity training. You, you've alluded to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. You've alluded to the power of the Holy Spirit to transform. And uh, in your role in, at Wheaton in, in areas of discipleship as a campus uh, minister, what, what is a Christian response in terms of a deeper discipleship uh, in this area? Because we are working in a world where sin loves to wreak havoc, it loves to establish patterns that, um, that harm people and divide people, including Christians, and where race, racialization, and racism have been significant forces in our formation, which is why so much of the church in the United States is divided, um, especially along racial lines. And you see that in the ways that we vote, which everyone has the right to vote their conscience, but it's interesting that our votes are oftentimes aligned with our race more than our faith, uh, and that we use apologetics to defend a particular partisan position instead of actually seeing that both parties are completely flawed in the country, as well as uh, the ways that no party actually represents Jesus and his kingdom fully. Um, I think that we have to do some work of uh, untangling Christianity and maybe especially evangelicalism from uh, partisan idolatry. But when it comes to discipleship, I think that we do need a robust race conscious and gender conscious discipleship. And this is one of the things that we called for in the statement. One of the things I'm finding over and over, uh, including at my work uh, at Wheaton, is that many of the students come in seeking to be a part of a kingdom community that's very diverse and celebrates all of the contributions that, that, that God has instilled within each people group, with each community and yet find it very difficult that some groups are more exclusionary than other groups and maintain harmful stereotypes and hold harmful stereotypes because they've often come from homogenous churches and homogenous upbringings. What's difficult about that is that we've basically taken the playbook of the world, which is a segregated playbook, and have perpetuated that through the church. And so if you look at the studies, uh, one of the things that you'll see is that the average church in the United States is still more segregated than the average neighborhood that they're a part of. The majority of multi-ethnic churches, even the ones that are led, or the majority of multi-ethnic churches are actually um, not diverse because white people are entering into communities that are led and predominantly shaped by non-white Christians but because Christians of color are entering into predominantly white communities. The, 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 the challenge that we're finding with that, and this is what Michael Emerson is continuing to, to, to talk about, is that the burden of diversity, uh, 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 the burden of a diverse and unified Christian expression and community seems to consistently be on the backs of, of Christians of color and the discomfort is not necessarily equitable and the sacrifices are not ne necessarily equitable. And one of the things that we have to figure out is how can we 
enter into a community of mutuality, of mutual sacrifice and support to actually address some of the things that have some of the broader, how can we enter into a community of mutuality and mutual submission and support to actually address the broader segregating and oppressing forces that have, uh, that our churches have basically been laid on top of. And so we live in a racialized society. That, there's no question about that. It's a question of whether the church is going to counteract that or the church is going to play into that. And sadly, throughout the history of the church, even though there have been some bright spots, the majority of our churches have actually played into the segregation because of the ways in which we have been so poorly discipled on issues of race and applying the scriptures, applying the, the broader kingdom narrative into uh, the racial framework that we're seeing. And so I do think that we need to have a race conscious and gender conscious discipleship so that we don't perpetuate the harms that we're seeing in the broader society. We've covered some terrain that's um, really challenging, really difficult, um, prophetic in some of the statements. Uh, and this is a season in which we've had a very hard and weary past year. Uh, what, what pastoral words would you offer uh, to those who are just weary, weary with uh, the heaviness of the racial injustice that we encounter, weary with the, the many um, social and personal tragedies that we've experienced this past year? What, what pastoral words would you offer? Yeah, I mean, first of all, to those who are caring for those who are hurting, I, I hope that you're finding places where you are cared for and that um, that if you're a pastor, that elders are surrounding you, that other pastors are surrounding you um, and, and supporting you in the work because this has been a very difficult season, not just for Asian Americans, but for um, African Americans, Latino Americans, uh, First Nations people, as well as uh, all Americans and, and basically the whole world. I mean, we're seeing a, an entire world uh, reeling from the pandemic. Um, I also want to say that I've been hearing more and more stories of white Christians and white Christian leaders who have really been pursuing this in a way that has been costly to them. And I want to say thank you for joining in the work. Uh, I know that it's meant that uh, people have left your churches, uh, that you have been called words that other people have been called and have been called for decades and centuries, including words like Marxist or liberal or um, communist or socialist or some part of a woke agenda or whatever it is that people try to do to uh, hinder um, efforts around biblical Christian racial justice. Um, and to know that you have people that are with you and, 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 and cheering you on, whether you know us or not. And, you know, I, I'd love to hear your stories as well. And I've been hearing so many and been uh, grateful to carry so many of those stories as well. But to those who are uh, racial, uh, racially minoritized, especially for the, for my fellow Asian American, African American, Latino, and um, First Nations uh, brothers and sisters, um, we can't forget that God sees us. That God sees you. He knows what you're going through. And in the ways that he didn't abandon Israel despite the ways that Israel had forsaken him, the way that empires have, had, have tried to, to, to crush them. He doesn't abandon us. 
even when our leaders fail in the ways that he didn't abandon the most marginalized among us, like Ruth, he doesn't abandon us and he doesn't fail us. God sees your pain more than anyone else could and better than anyone else could in ways that no one else can. And he tends to your pain. And as we know that vindication belongs to him and that on his cross, he absorbed everything for our sake. He's, he's going to make all things right because he's a God that, that fulfills all of his promises. And, and that's a promise that you can carry with you in every season. If it's hard to trust God, I also want you to know that it's, it's okay that, that you take some time to figure out like what it is that's making it difficult uh, and that he gives you space for that and continues to lovingly invite you and nudge you into his embrace and that he's far closer than you could ever imagine. And if it's hard to grasp the love of God, I, I hope that you know that he's actively working to reveal his love to you, which we know is true because of all that we saw on Calvary 2000 years ago. And so know that there is a God whose love goes far beyond the love that you might not be getting from even your fellow brothers and sisters in this world who call themselves Christians uh, or part of your families and are um, either intentionally or intentionally, unintentionally harming you. Our guest on today's conversation has been Raymond Chang. I'm Walter Kim, and on behalf of us all, very special thanks to Raymond. The National Association of Evangelicals is where we use influence for good. Today's conversation is one of many ways we connect and represent evangelical Christians in the United States. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please follow along on Twitter at NAEvangelicals or on our Facebook page for the National Association of Evangelicals. And sign up for our email list when you visit our website at nae.net.